You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Now, as a universal approach, we can all agree there's a time and a place that's gone, which is where passwords were effective. And now we need to replace it with more strong authentication. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got interesting stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with Eric Olden, CEO and co-founder of Strata Identity. We're talking about about the current state of identity management. But first, a word from our sponsor, Know Before. Where would InfoSec professionals be without users making security mistakes? Working less than 60 hours per week, perhaps. Actually having a weekend every so often. We get it. User behavior can be a challenge. But users can also be an InfoSec professional's greatest asset once properly equipped. What do we mean by that? Well, stay with us, and in a few minutes, we'll hear from our sponsors at Know Before on that very question. All right, Joe, before we jump into our stories here, we've got a little bit of follow-up. Yes, we do, Dave. We have Michael who writes in with a letter. Do you want to read it? Uh, Sure. He says, uh, Dave and Joe, I have listened to the podcast from episode one, and I am glad that you kept it going after season one. Well, thank you, Michael. Yep. He says, with a house full of young people, 14 to 25, I play the podcast as we do life around the house with the hope that they will absorb tidbits of understanding. They might never listen to the full podcast. We also talk about scams at the dinner table from time to time. With that said, my kids and my wife, who claims that she is naive in this space, are getting the message. More and more, my family is grasping how bad the internet is. (laughs) It's really bad. (laughs) As they are now seeing advertisements on YouTube and other social networks that claim magical results from acne prevention to wealth creation. Before buying almost anything, they ask me, is this really true? And 99% of the time, it is not true. Right. An example is my 19-year-old son wanted a PlayStation at an amazing price. Of course, payment was only accepted via Zelle. He had no clue that all would be lost if he actually attempted to purchase it. <laughs> While we're getting better at spotting spam and hack attempts in text and email, we're seeing more and more in social media. I encourage everyone to have a more critical eye. Love the show and the spinoff at the movies. Michael. Well, thank you, Michael. Thank it's you, very Michael. kind of you. Yes. And your son is going to lose all his money if he, if he zells somebody the, uh, is that the verb, zell? I don't like <laughs> this. Zell. I don't like, I don't like this, uh, this way that we have apps now as verbs. I'll Venmo you the money. I'll zell you the money. Uh-huh. I'll PayPal you. It probably started with Googling things. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we did it in the 80s. Remember partying? That's party right. was a noun yeah. up until the 80s. Oh, that's interesting. Let's party. Hmm. I, you're probably right. Yeah. I know. It's just, it's become so normal now. I don't even think about it. Right. Hmm. My girl likes to party all the time. <laughs> all right. Let's jump into our stories here. I am going to kick things off with a story that I think is a, a bit of good news in, in an otherwise bad situation. Uh, this is an article from the folks over at Ars Technica written by Ashley Bellinger. Okay. Uh, and it's titled, Teens Can Proactively Block Their Nude Images from Instagram or OnlyFans. Huh. Uh, so this comes from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Familiar right. with them? Yep, I am. They've been around for decades. Yes, they and uh, I guess they were, uh, I'm pretty sure they're the folks who originally were responsible for putting kids' pictures on the sides of milk cartons. Yes, I think so. That sort of thing. Yes. Um, but, of course, they've expanded as times have changed and the Internet has, has come. One of the things that they really help with is kids who are being exploited online. Uh, and a big part of that is... Um, uh, sexual images, yep. uh, nudes, that sort of thing. They maintain a very large list of hashes that match uh, CSAM images. Right, right. And so um, what they've pointed out in this article is that between 2019 and 2021, the number of sextortion cases that were reported to them on their tip line has more than doubled. 
Really? And they said nearly 80% of those cases involve teens suffering financial sextortion, which is huh. pressure to send cash or gift cards uh, with a threat of their images, their sexualized images, being spread around online. Right. Now, you can imagine you're a teenager, uh, you know, you've, for, for whatever reason, you've you've done what you've done. Right. <laughs> What's done is done. Yes. Uh, but somehow it's spread beyond the party that you had initially intended that image to go to. It probably was never, there probably never was a party the way this, you know, that initial party may not have been who they said they were. Yeah, that's a good point too. Yeah. Right, right. So once that image gets out there, it's awfully tough to get it back. It is. Uh, and, and one of the problems that the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children has is that with their tip line, they gather information on that line. So right. in order to use that, you have to share some things. And you can understand why someone who found themselves in this situation... Doesn't want to share the information. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. So they have recently launched a tool. It's called Take It Down... Uh, it had a soft launch in December, uh, and they said about 200 people have used it so far to block uploads or remove images of minors shared online. Really? And the, how this works is it's, it's an anonymous system where uh, you feed the—forgive the, uh, the I'm, I'm, forgive me, I'm going to say the offending image. That's not what, what I mean, but right. uh, the offending image into the system, and uh, that image gets hashed. And then the hash is what gets spread around rather than the actual image. Right. This is very similar to what they do with the the database that they keep. They don't actually keep a database of CSAM, just a list of the hashes for those images. Right. And just real quick, Joe, can you give us a little rundown on what exactly a hash is? Well, actually, I, I can give you a rundown on what a hash is, but there's also another thing here. But it suffice to say, a hash is an encryption algorithm Yeah. that is a one-way algorithm. So the the... Benefits of a, of a good cryptographic, or the features, rather, of a good cryptographic hash are that if you change the input, you'll get a completely different output. Mm. Uh, if, you, um, if you know the output, you can't regenerate the input. Mm. And it's very hard to take two inputs and come up with the same output. I see. Now, that's true for cryptographically sound hashes. But... Uh, I think what the Center for Missing Exploited Children uses is MD5, which is actually pretty easy to generate collisions. And you'll hear cryptographers say MD5 is useless, but it isn't useless because it has a really interesting feature that is not good for cryptography in that it's fast, but is remarkably good for forensics because you can quickly go through all these files, get their MD5 hashes, Find out if any of them match, and then go look at the file that matches. I see. And see if you have an offending image. Right. So that's the idea of what a hash is. Uh-huh. Uh, and you don't want to use something other than MD5 to do that. You want to be able to do this quickly and then go investigate the matches. So it's it's that old thing of uh, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. MD5 is perfect for, uh, for forensics. Now, there is another tool out there called, I think it's called PhotoDNA. Mm. It's from Microsoft. That is more than just hashing an image because one of the things about MD5 is if I change one pixel in that image, the hash will be completely different. Okay. Right? Yeah. But with photo DNA, that is not the case. Okay. I get something very similar to a hash. It's not actually a hash. It's a, it's a, it, well, I guess you could say it's a hash, but it's a, uh, a, a non-reversible representation of that photo that if I start changing little bits of that photo, it'll still come out to something very close to what, uh, or maybe the same as what the photo DNA signature is. Huh. Okay. So they may, might be using photo DNA. Well, so this technology has been adopted by some big players here. Meta is using it mm-hmm. for Facebook and Instagram. So Good. hard to get much bigger than that. Nope. Uh, there's an online uh, networking app called Ubo that's using it. But and then also, uh, interestingly, uh, Pornhub and OnlyFans are both participating in this as well. Yeah. Well, the, these guys are, uh, you know, it's it's interesting that usually uh, companies that, that make their money with porn are some of the biggest advocates of the Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Right. And they, because they, their business model, they have to walk a very tight legal line. Yeah. And they want nothing to do with anything illegal. Right. And, and you know, it, however you feel about it, 
they're going to do whatever they can do to keep that stuff off their platform because they don't want their business model shut down. Yeah, and and I guess it helps their their argument for being in business if they can demonstrate their right. their participation. Hey, in look something at us! Like We're good this. corporate citizens. Right. We're doing this in good faith. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know what? They they may be doing it in good faith. I'm not I'm not judging their motives, but right. I, I'm happy with the outcome. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, interesting article here. We'll have a link to this in the show notes. Again, the 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 uh, the tool is called Take It Down, mm-hmm. uh, and I think it's worth checking out. But it's some, maybe it's something to have a a conversation if you've got uh, teen kids in your life. Yeah, something that they might want to know about. Spread the word uh, to their friends. I think the key thing to tell them is that this is now a means of extortion. Uh, uh, yeah, that yeah. this is what the way people are going after and monetizing the the, uh, the the malicious activity on the internet right now. Yeah, you know it's a really good point, Joe. And and this article points out that there have actually been some extreme cases where this sort of thing has led to suicide. Yep, absolutely. Which is the most tragic thing you can imagine. No one doing that. And so I think your point is excellent that to have this conversation to say you know, there's always hope, right? Right, And there are tools like this available that can help with this sort of thing. Nobody has to know who you are. Uh, so yeah, there's always hope. Yeah. It's yeah. that, that's an important thing is yeah. that, um, you know, there are tools out there that can resolve this issue. Uh, you shouldn't be, uh, you know, I, I, I've said here before, and maybe I'm being too much of an old man here, but you know, don't, don't share nudes with people, you know, or people you just are online. Just don't, don't do it. It's right. bad practice. <laughs> right, right, and, and here's right. why it's a bad practice. Um, but in the event that you do there, you know, you're right. There is, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. This will not be something that dogs you for the rest of your life. Yeah. Uh, you will be one of a great many people who have had this happen to them. Right. It's unfortunate that a great many people have it happen to them. Uh, but you know, don't let the shame drive you to do something terrible. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, again, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. Joe, that's what I have for us this week. What do you got for us? Dave, my story this week comes from David Olive, who uh, is a sits on the Preparedness Leadership Council. Uh, I go to meetings with them sometimes. And Dave sent me this. Uh, it is a LinkedIn post by Gary Warner, who's kind of a big deal in the computer forensics industry. Okay. Uh, and he, uh, the LinkedIn post is uh, starts off with the question, why do we have so much fraud? Hmm. Right? Why do we have all this fraud? And uh, the answer is because the fraudsters are getting away with it. Hmm. And and Gary links to a couple of articles. The first one he points to is a post from the House of Lords in England. Okay. Uh, where there is a, an organization within that uh, government body that's called the, uh, it's got some act in front of it, but essentially it's the Digital Fraud Committee. Okay. That's, that's the last three words of the committee, the uh-huh. Digital Fraud Committee. Uh, and one of the things that this committee noted is that in the UK, 46% of crime is fraud, hmm. but 1% of law enforcement is dedicated to fraud, hmm. which is interesting. Okay. And Nikki Ann Morgan, who is the chair of this committee, says, and I'm going to quote her here, uh, fraud is the most commonly experienced crime in the country. A person is more likely to be a victim of fraud than any other crime, and it costs billions in losses, yet it is under-resourced, under-prioritized, and the impact is widely underestimated. Hmm. Um, there is an article, another article that Gary links to from a, a, a news outlet called Witch, and this article is that's W H I C H, right, right, not, not Burner. Right? <laughs> I just, I have to, yeah. <laughs> Every time I hear Witch, I just go right to Monty Python. Well, and I'll <laughs> say over on the CyberWire, from time to time, we we reference articles that come from Witch, and and it just. I I feel like I'm in an Abbott and Costello routine when I'm saying, <laughs> right. you know, today uh, today witch reported that who? No, not who, witch. You know. <laughs> anyway, go, go on. Witches in England. <laughs> yeah, go on. <laughs> uh, the author is Josh Wilson, and uh, he, he noted that the National Fraud Intelligence Bureau, the NFIB, received around 900,000 fraud reports hmm. uh, for cybercrime in 2020 to 2021, but of these, just 8% or 72,000 about were disseminated to law enforcement for investigation. Hmm. Then in 2021, just 40, uh, 4,500, just under 4,500 fraud cases made it to court. So 
I did some rough back of the envelope math, Dave. And if that <laughs> 900,000 number <laughs> is for two years and yeah. one year they put in, uh, they put in less than 4,500, that means you have a 99% chance of getting away with fraud in the UK if your case is reported, huh. which it probably won't be. Okay. Uh, remember that, uh, that Ms. Morgan said that it is widely underestimated. And I think it's widely underestimated because it's widely un- unreported. Yeah. Underreported. Um, now, do you, how much of this do you, do you suppose is that there's fraud and then there's fraud? You know, in yeah. other words, there's, well, there's what I would describe as nuisance, nuisance fraud, fraud where right. somebody, oh, I'm out five bucks. Yep. Oh, darn it. You know, and I, I'm not expecting the, the police to bring out a SWAT team in a hard target search to, to get my five dollars. <laughs> That's back. an excellent question. <laughs> that is an excellent question. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I don't know. The, the articles don't seem to break that down to that level. Right. Uh, but they do break down. What is interesting is police resourcing uh-huh. and the city of London which I believe is actually different from London larger. You know, the, it's, it's a small section of London. Okay. Uh, of what you would think of as London. Has a police officer staff of 1,357 people, and the fraud desk, you know, the fraud department is 34 of those people, 2.5%. <laughs> and that is the most in the United Kingdom, or actually, I think this is only England and Wales. Okay. Um, so it's not all of the United Kingdom. But the average is around 0.6%. So, like, for example, the Metropolitan Police, I don't know who that, maybe that's for larger London, but it seems like a pretty big police force at 43,000 people. Yeah. I don't know how big big of an area they cover, but they only have 300 uh, fraud officers. 0.7% of their police are uh, investigate fraud, dedicated to preventing fraud, fraud, or investigating fraud. So, when you have this kind of disparity... In in crime and reporting, first off, is I mean, there's arguments to be made that there's a problem here. Okay, right? Like we, forty six percent of the crime is is fraud, but that fraud, no one dies during that fraud. I was just going to ask. No about one gets that. beat up. Right, right. It's not right? a violent crime. It's not a violent crime. And the violent crime makes the TV news. Right. And so, when the when the folks who are in charge of funding these places stand up to to be reelected. Yep. What are they going to say? I'm going to cut down on fraud. Right. Maybe, but mostly we're going to make your neighborhood safer. Right. That resonates. Yes. Yeah. And I would bet there, this is, this is focused almost entirely on, on, uh, England and Wales. I would bet that if we did an investigation or somebody did some reporting on this in the United States, we'd find something very similar here yeah. and for very similar reasons, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, and we talk about how devastating it is to be physically assaulted, Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I have, I have a, a friend, a friend of a friend who had that happen to him and, and still hasn't fully recovered from it. Sure. Uh, and the issue is, well, what about the people who have lost a hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars? You know, what about, what about the old lady that loses her entire life savings? She is never going to recover from that either. Right. That is a financial end at the financial end of the road or, or at least a significant change in the road yeah. for that person. Yeah. Uh, these are, these are devastating crimes. You're right. When somebody scams you out of five bucks, nobody should come looking for that, but maybe there should be a cap. You know, if someone scams you out of more than 10 grand mm-hmm. or I guess it's pounds here, right? 10,000, 10,000 pounds. <laughs> right. Um, that, um, that these things will be, uh, investigated at least to some level. And there may be, I got, I don't know what the, what, what the, the threshold, threshold is for, for example, right. uh, if you call your local FBI office, which they encourage you to do. They, yeah, or they encourage you to make a complaint with the Internet Crime Complaint Center. Right. Which you may never hear back from, right. but they use it for keeping statistics. Right. And so maybe for doing a data, data analytics. What is the threshold at which you will get a callback from right. your local field office? It's an excellent question. I don't know. I don't know. I'll have to ask that question. Uh, let's see if I can get an answer to that. And the next FBI I, I, person. I know some folks in the FBI. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> do a little homework for myself there. Maybe we should have one of them on as a guest. <laughs> we could probably swing that. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Interesting stuff here. And and I guess this is one of those stories that leaves me thinking. Right. You know, more and more, as many questions as, as answers. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, and that's probably good. That's probably good that we're thinking that. Like, yeah. That. It's it's a real it, it makes you scratch your head. I don't want to say the story is a real head scratcher. The problem is a real head scratcher. <laughs> right. You know, right. Why do we why do we dedicate one percent of our police resources to forty six percent of our crime? Yeah, I mean that's a policy decision, but part of it, I'd I'd be interested to hear what we're saying. What someone in law enforcement would right. say about this? Why? 
Is it that they choose to dial it in this way? Is that their their constituents demand that they dial it in this way? It's an interesting question. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes, of course. Uh, we would love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to consider for the show, you can email us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from Sean, who writes, I'm an avid listener of many CyberWire podcasts, which is great. Yeah, good. Uh, We'd love to hear that. Uh, (laughs) As a security leader with a background in social sciences, I particularly enjoy Hacking Humans, CSO Perspectives, and Eighth Layer Insights. That's Perry Carpenter's uh, podcast. And CSO Perspectives is Rick Howard's, right? Yep. 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 I learn something new and noteworthy from every show, and I am frequently able to put them immediately into practice in my professional and personal lives. So many thanks to the entire CyberWire team. I received the attached message from, quote, Meta Resources recruiter informing me of an open CISO lead role. Okay. So, and it's, it's, what's interesting is that it begins with his name. Yeah, but also that... I mean, a CISO, like, this is swinging for the fences. Right. Right? Batting for six, as they say. <laughs> right. If you're if you're trying to scam a CISO, which is a top-level cybersecurity <laughs> right. professional, right? Like, <laughs> okay. Well, here, here's, here's the email. It says, Dear Sean, hi, we are MRG, a recruitment agency based in U.S. We have an upcoming opening for Chief Information Security Officer lead role with one of the well-renowned bank in the world, based in the USA. While going through your LinkedIn profile, we thought you might be interested. Please go through the attached JD and revert back to us with confirmation about the interest for the role. Also, kindly send us your updated resume, maximum of three pages, and information below to start process for your application. What is your current residency, city, and country? Are you authorized to work for any employer on a contract in your current residency? As this is a contract role, would you be able to commence this contract on C2C? How many years of experience do you have leading IT security systems? Brief us about your experience of end-to-end assessments and remediation projects resulting from company M&A activities. Are you proficient in developing physical and digital security protocols and procedures? When can you be available to join if selected? Please provide your best callback number. What is your desired compensation? Do you provide us right to represent you to our client? Meta Resources Group is a professional service provider firm that has been offering expertise in IT consulting, staffing, and recruitment and offshore IT services based on the latest market and technological trends. Combining the years of experience and knowledge of certified staff, innovative mindsets, and implementation of upgraded technologies, Meta Resources Group has been the partner of all business genres with an exceptional capacity in leading technologies for enterprises. Our client is a division of world's second largest pharmaceutical company who are about to expand business in 17 new markets worldwide, uh, having over 150 open positions in diverse roles to fill in. I thought it was a bank. Didn't he say bank to start with? I think he did. <laughs> you may find more about us at this website. Best regards, recruitment team, Meta Resources Group. So this came as an email attachment uh, that Sean sent along, and... It actually has the PDF for the job description, and the title of the job description is Chief Information Security Officer Lead Slash Project Manager. Hmm. I don't know who wrote that, but it's just like word salad, right? (laughs) If you're the Chief Information Security Officer, you're not a lead. You're a chief. You're actually part of the C-suite, right? Right. You're an officer in that company. Right. And that has certain, depending on what, what kind of company you have, that has certain obligations that go along with it. Yes. Uh, you're probably also not a project manager. Project managers work for you. Right. Right. Especially <laughs> at large organizations like banks. This doesn't make any sense to me. No, no. It, 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 if somebody sent me, this is why I don't work with third-party recruiters anymore, Dave, because yeah. so many things I get from them look exactly like this. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to Sean for sending that in to us. Again, we would love to hear from you. Our email is hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com.
we're talking about making users into an asset for security professionals. Simply put, users want to do the right thing. They're often just lacking the knowledge to do so. That's one of the reasons Knowbefore has released Security Coach, a real-time security coaching tool that takes alerts from your existing security stack and sends immediate coaching to users who've taken risky actions. For example, imagine a user has visited a high-risk website or tried to open a document containing malware. Existing security tools will likely block that action, but the user might not understand why. Security Coach analyzes these alerts and provides users with relevant security tips via email or Slack, coaching them on why the action they just took was risky. Help users learn from their mistakes and strengthen your organization's security culture with Security Coach. Learn more about Security Coach at knowbefore.com slash security coach. That's knowbefore.com slash security coach. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Eric Olden. He is CEO and co-founder of Strata Identity. And we're talking about the current state of identity management. Here's my conversation with Eric Olden. From a historical standpoint, I individually have been in identity since uh, my first company, Securant Technologies. I co-founded that in uh, 1995. And that company was started at the really the early days of the web. And what was going on in those early days was that there was a shift to having people on the internet access your website and buy things from you or get information and so forth. And the big challenge at that point was that many organizations had never had uh, millions or thousands even of users accessing their their data and their applications. And so a need arose for how do you manage the way that people access applications and data and do that at scale? So the first generation of identity management really came up in, in that uh, era to solve the problem of doing security at scale. Then as the market and uh, technology evolved in the early 2000s, we started to see more and more of the complexity come in. And that meant that instead of just having a single idea of how a user gets into an application or a website where one size fits all, there was a whole lot more uh, complexity introduced because companies needed to be more specific and granular about who can access what. And that meant that identity management started to become more sophisticated as well. And that evolved beyond things like single sign-on to include authentication and access control and authorization and auditing. So in that first generation, we really saw scale and then complexity come in. And then if you go a little bit further into the future around 2006, I started my second company called Simplified, and we were helping companies deal with the move to uh, software as a service, where now the applications were run by a third party. And that meant that you needed to find a way to have standards that could span different organizations. And I was part of the group that co-authored a standard called SAML, or Security Assertion Markup Language. Mm. And what that was really doing was created a new notion called Identity Federation. And what we were doing with that was making trust work across the internet between organizations. And you saw a rise in how users would access SaaS applications. And that second wave was really interesting because it coincided with a lot more this confidence that organizations would have that data needs to reside outside of their firewall. 
outside of the perimeter. Then if you scale it to uh, fast forward to kind of modern times where the cloud becomes the main idea of where you're going to run your computing. And uh, a lot of this was accelerated with COVID in the pandemic where everybody had to work remote. And so all of a sudden, all of your applications and all of your data and all of your users were now anywhere on the internet. And that led to a shift of identity becoming the perimeter and notions of zero trust uh, came out and became popular. And where we find ourselves today is how do you secure the users and applications when everybody can be anywhere and your applications and your data are everywhere? And that is the multi-cloud problem. And what we've seen as a way to kind of move into that and solve that problem is to apply the concept of orchestration to identity. And orchestration is very common in uh, technology. It started in um, IT automation and server management and things of that type, uh, things like Kubernetes and Terraform, but it hadn't yet been introduced to the identity plane. And that's really where the innovation is happening today, which is how do you automate and integrate security for your users and your apps and your data in this really distributed multi-cloud world? So it's been a long history, but it's been a, an exciting one to be part of. Yeah, I, I, I'm curious, like from someone who has your perspective and your history with this, what are some of the problems that you consider to be solved when it comes to identity and what are some of the challenges that we still face? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think one of the, the, the most profound one is that the root of so many problems is uh, passwords. Passwords are the weakest link in security, in my view. And the reason for that is that it's so easy to use social engineering and phishing to steal somebody's, basically trick them into providing their password. And then a bad actor can take that password and steal data and do bad things. And so we've known about this forever. And there have been various uh, efforts to replace passwords with various things along the way. And multi-factor authentication, passwordless being uh, the most popular, and tokens before that. The ironic thing is that we know what the problem is. We know how to solve it. But up until really recently, there hasn't been the, the organizational will to get rid of passwords and move to passwordless. And I think it's interesting that we're seeing now a combination of factors accelerating that trend, including uh, legislation from the federal government requiring uh, alternatives to passwords to be used, but also with the private industry and insurance, where if you want a cyber insurance policy, if you don't have a multi-factor authentication or a passwordless strategy implemented, then you may not get your policy underwritten. So we're seeing these uh, factors drive adoption, which has been really good because now as a universal approach, we can all agree there's a time and a place that's gone, which is where passwords were effective. And now we need to replace it with more strong authentication. So I think that was probably the biggest one and then the other related to that is that virtually everybody today has a very powerful authentication mechanism in their mobile phone. And most phones have the ability to apply biometrics, which mean that they can scan your face or your fingerprint and basically take something that you are, your facial proportions or your fingerprint, 
and then link that physical identity to your digital identity. So this is really, I think, making that move to how you can be able to have secure access without using passwords. Just use your phone. And um, so that that's exciting, but we're really early on in the implementation. So everyone's got the phone. Now we need to solve the problem by making that work with the applications. And uh, there's a lot of integration work to go into that. And uh, you know, we think that the appropriate way to do that is to uh, not require custom integration, but to instead use your um, technology to do that. So that's kind of where I see the state of uh, identity security at the moment. Can you describe for us how you imagine something like that working? I mean, I think for a lot of us, myself included, um, you know, who who uses lots of different passwords every day, but also enjoys using things like Face ID, like Touch ID, and, and can kind of see a future based around those sorts of technologies. What does the future look like in terms of folks going about their everyday business and, and being authenticated for the, the things they need to use to do that business? Well, you know, the great thing is that it's so much more convenient for people to use their biometrics on their phone than it is to remember all of these various passwords. So I think that's been a really nice thing is that the security gets better and you have ease of use. So I think that's maybe the magic that is of the moment is that historically security used to mean a lot more work. And now you actually get rid of work because you don't have to remember your fingerprint. You have it on you at all times. So I think that's going to be good news for people, myself, yourself, and everyone else. I think on the other side is if you're an enterprise or government agency, how do you bridge the technology with your environment, with your applications? And that's really driving a lot of digital transformations today are looking to use modernization of their infrastructure to solve this security problem while they upgrade their systems to be more cloud-based. So there's this idea that instead of uh, lifting and shifting your application workloads from your enterprise into the cloud, oftentimes that translates to moving your mess. Instead, we see an opportunity to move and improve so that you adopt the cloud but at the same time, you modernize your identity technology so you can use these new biometrics and passwordless technologies to secure your applications. So it's basically taking advantage of the fact that you have to move things to modernize them and to use this as an opportunity to upgrade and do that in a, a measured way so that it doesn't get to be a huge challenge in terms of um, upgrading your systems. Are there any established or, or proposed standards for this so that you know, we could perhaps see things that work across platform and across devices and across you know, destinations on the, on the internet? Is, is that ultimately something we aspire to? Yeah, absolutely. I think standards are the backbone of the internet. And we wouldn't have the internet as we know it without agreeing on core standards. And so if you look at the standards that underpin the transformations that I'm referring to, there's a couple that really stand out. I think the first one is SAML, which is how you can rely on different organizations to securely authenticate their users and interact in a trusted way. The next generation of federation is Open ID Connect, or also known as OIDC. And that is a really powerful way to avoid having passwords at all, because through OIDC, for instance, you can use your, say, your Google Gmail authentication over at an e-commerce store and buy something. So you don't have to have a password at the store because you can use your identity at Google 
through this OIDC standard to authenticate you at the store. On the authentication side, there is a really interesting standard called FIDO, F-I-D-O. And what FIDO stands for, uh, well, basically what FIDO does is makes the authentication mechanism itself uh, open so that no one vendor controls how the authentication process works. And so you have FIDO and now FIDO2, which is the next version of it, um, allowing you to mix and match different authentication technologies without rewriting your applications. So that's been a really big um, and powerful capability. And you can see it in this new technology that's coming out called passkeys, which are really uh, very compelling because they avoid passwords and they're supported by the major platform vendors like Apple and Microsoft and Google. And what that allows you to do is basically to use your identity in these other platforms in a similar way as OIDC, but to use this in a more ubiquitous way. And you can link that with a device. So passkeys and FIDO are really interesting. And then the last one I think is um, one that we're, I'm personally very involved with, which is the identity query language or IDQL. And what IDQL was designed to do is to make the rules and the policies in all of the different uh, cloud platforms on a East and West basis. So <clears throat> imagine Amazon and Google and Azure making your rules consistent across all of these different clouds and also through the computing stack. So you can have a consistent way to define and manage policy at your application, your data, and your networking layer. So IDQL is really the kind of cornerstone of policy orchestration. So think about it as a universal language to define the rules no matter where the application and data is. And that allows organizations to do this in a much more, do governance and say how they're going to allow people to access apps and data in a consistent way. And so there's a open source project that we helped get off the ground called HEXA, H-E-X-A. And it's now part of the CNCF, which is an open source body that uh, a lot of people know for Kubernetes and open telemetry. So the standards are all coming together from SAML, OpenID Connect to FIDO and Passkeys and now IDQL. And that's really how to think about standards and identity in this complex distributed world. Joe, what do you think? Uh, really interesting. Uh, you know, the identity thing is, you know, I think of it as how do you prove that somebody is who they say they are? Right. And, and how do you, and then how do you do that at scale? Right. 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 Uh, which is a real problem. Yeah. Uh, the, the identity management, it, initially we were just talking about doing the, the triple A, you know, the, the, uh, authorization, the, uh, authentication first authorization, second auditing all the while. Right. Um, and there's some people use a different A for auditing, and I can't remember what it is, but okay. it essentially is the same thing. It's just creating a, uh, an audit trail. Uh, and then the question becomes, what do you do when you start relying on other people to attest to someone's identity? Right. Right. Uh, and that, we do that with the, the Google Authenticator uh, or Google Authentication accounts. You know, we, are there any accounts that you use that you just log in? You say, use my Google identity? I used to go down that path, but... Um... After years ago being burned by Facebook, I'm not falling for that again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm not falling for that trick. <laughs> no, no. So many great jokes end with that yeah. first line. <laughs> just, just upload my entire uh, address book? Well, sure. Sure, yeah. That's that'll, make it, one that'll be so convenient for to me to connect with my friends. <laughs> Why not? I one time had somebody uh, interview me for a job that was looking for somebody that was to develop apps to go out and do just that. Yeah. 
I was like, I'm not working for you. <laughs> Good for you. In fact, after this interview, I'm going to go take a shower. That's gross. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, there was no infrastructure like this 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. There, there was, everybody had their own username and password. You, you really didn't know who they were. And now this, uh, this SAML language has stepped in to help you share this authentication over these different areas. But you're right. How do we trust that? Yeah. How do we trust that with using like Facebook? I wouldn't trust Facebook to do anything. Right. I don't even trust Facebook to run Facebook <laughs> or Meta <laughs> right. to run their social, social apps, whatever yeah. they are. Yeah. I, I use them as little as possible. But then the interesting thing happens with COVID where everybody has to go uh, home and work from there. And now your users can be coming from anywhere. And when I heard this, I honestly thought for a second, this is something we all should have seen coming, mm. right? As an industry, we should have seen that we're going to need to have this kind of, this kind of capability. We're going to be having, you know, the, the, the perimeters of organizations were dissolving. Uh, all COVID did was just really speed that up. Yeah. Make it happen within a couple of weeks. Right. Right. <laughs> which, right. Which was probably a little too fast. Yeah. Um, but now everything is everywhere and including our authentication. And one of the words that Eric uses or one of the phrases, I love this term. We live in a multi-cloud world. Mm-hmm. Um, that is an interesting way to think about it. And that's exactly right. There are all these different services running everywhere. And I'm going to come back to this idea of cloud in a minute. Um, but when you ask him what the problems are, he says that the root of most of the problem still comes down to passwords. Mm-hmm. And that's because as humans, we suck at making passwords. <laughs> we just can't do it. Yeah. Uh, just, yeah. <laughs> but we had a guest a couple of weeks ago who said, if you use a password manager, you're a lot less likely to be uh, a victim of fraud because you're going to have the passwords that are different for every site and complex. But if nobody does that, or if users don't do that, or if companies don't enforce it, then it's not going to be, uh, it's not going to be successful. It's not going to be the case. Right. So, uh, we, the, another, another point that Eric makes is we still lack the organizational will to move away from passwords. Mm -hmm. So we're sticking with passwords and we're sticking with doing them poorly. It's not, that's not a tenable solution. Yeah. (laughs) It's not going to work. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's efforts, you right? Know, and I feel as though the edges are chipping away at at the username password combination. But you're right; it is slow going. Yes, uh, the phone is a pretty good tool. Uh, Eric says it's not 100 percent ready yet. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I believe that. I think it, but I I think it does have the capability because it does have other ways to authenticate yourself, like with biometrics, like the Apple Face ID, which is remarkably good. Yeah. Um, I like Fido, which mm-hmm. uh, Eric also in, uh, mentions. And I think that's uh, that's that's a great way to go. Uh, but I want to get back to the cloud topic, and I, I want to ask this question, and maybe you know have a discussion with you about this. Am I a luddite for saying that I don't trust the cloud? I don't trust cloud things. <laughs> In what way? How, so how do you? I have a coffee mug that my daughter gave me. You okay. Know, my daughter also works in this in this field. Yeah. And it says on on the coffee mug, there is no cloud. It's just someone else's computer. Sure. That, right? Yeah, that old chestnut. Yep. Yep. And it's, <laughs> it's absolutely correct. And you don't know what happens when you put your data in the cloud. I was talking with another friend of mine who's been doing cybersecurity since before we called it cybersecurity. Uh-huh. And he was talking about what he does and how he is remarkably against doing cloud data of just putting data in the cloud. You have to make sure that when that data goes to that cloud provider, it's encrypted so that when that data provider get when that cloud provider gets breached at the location of whatever place they're getting breached at, mm-hmm. and you don't know where it is. You have no idea where the data center is. You just know you have a service on the internet that you can access. Right. Uh, you know, in fact, that's why it's called the cloud is because on those old diagrams, the internet was just a big cloud. Right. We don't know what's up there. Right. We don't know where it is. We just go to the internet and get it. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm taking this down that rat hole that you hate when I go down, <laughs> but I don't trust the cloud, Dave. Well, I, you know, I'll, so I'll come at it from the other direction, which I think there's a good case to be made that... Uh, when you're using the cloud instead of using your own on-site, as they say, on-prem right. uh, resources, your own servers, you know, it used to be that we joke that um, 
IT folks like to be able to go into the server room and hug their servers. Yes. They like having them nearby. I've hugged a couple servers in my day. And so the no, I think part of the notion is that the cloud providers are going to have more resources at their disposal to, to help with security. Yep. Because they're running at such a larger scale, presumably, than you are. Right. So I get there's that. going to be security baked in. Yep. And so that just becomes part of your risk proposition that there are some things you're going to have to worry about, other things you probably won't. And if on balance, the cloud makes it a better proposition for you, not to mention it's probably going to be cheaper. It is probably going to be cheaper. Then um, there you go. You're, you're 100% rec- right about the cheaper and easier, and particularly for like smaller companies. I get, I get the use case there. Yeah. But when you're talking about larger companies and like maybe even government organizations, I think there's a lot of pitfalls that 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 you open yourself up to if you just blindly start subscribing to cloud services and and setting them up. I think that yeah. that, but of course, there's all kinds of different things you have to do, and it, that there's uh, story after story of how people have deliberately configured things to be less secure than they are, and that's like a user issue, right? Right, right. I also think that if you're one of those big-time users who's going to be operating on the cloud at, at a large scale, then you're going to have things in place to ensure that all those things are being taken care of, that right. things are being encrypted, that they're being distributed, that they're, you know, backup, uh, all, all that stuff. You're going to be asking those questions before you sign that check that has a lot of zeros in it. Right. So am I a Luddite or not? No, no, you're not a Luddite. You you just have a healthy dose of paranoia and skepticism. (laughs) I think I have more than a healthy (laughs) dose. (laughs) All right. Well, our thanks once again to Eric Olden for joining us. Uh, Again, he is the CEO and co-founder of Strata Identity, and we do appreciate him taking the time for us today. We want to thank all of you for listening, and of course, we want to thank our sponsors at Know Before. They are experts in helping users do the right thing through new school security awareness training. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Our thanks to Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at harborlabs.com and isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening.